HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, welcome back to Saved by the Bellini, the podcast. I am John DeBerry, and this is the podcast where we take a behind-the-scenes look at my cocktail book, Saved by the Bellini, which is a love letter to the 90s uh, as told through uh, a couple dozen cocktail recipes. And this series is sort of dedicated to the people who had um, an influence, large, small, direct, indirect, on the production of this book. Um, and it's very fitting that for uh, the final interview of this series, uh, we're talking to Jim Meehan, who is, um, has been a, who's my boss, and he has been a mentor for me for um, 15 or so years, uh, and so much of how I work as a professional and, and you know, the things I value uh, are a direct result of his influence. And um, every cocktail I create, every, you know, everything I write kind of has some level of DNA um, thanks to him. And so I wanted to bring him on because he actually also did bartend in the 90s. And so I got <clears throat> a really cool look at sort of how people think of the 90s as being this dark time for, for cocktails. Uh, but Toby's interview uh, really dispelled that and kind of rehabilitated the 90s a little bit in terms of like the mixology of it all. Um, and so I brought Jim on to talk about uh, what his experience was like bartending. And it turns out that it's actually really surprising that, you know, drinks were actually weren't that bad in the 90s. I think it actually got, got a bad rap. And so um, I learned a lot actually talking to Jim, even though we've you know talked at length for, for decades. Um, and I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation as well. Thanks for listening. Okay, so uh, hi, Jim. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I'm honored to be here, John. <laughs> Likewise, I'm honored that you're here. Um, I The reason why I'm bringing people like, like you and Julie and Toby on uh, to this podcast is because you know, I'm trying to sort of like explore the deeper world of the book uh, that I just wrote, say by the Bellini. Um, and it's both an exploration of like the 90s, uh, you know, as a pop culture kind of period, but then a little bit of like some drinks that sort of feel nineties ish as well as like some explicitly very nineties drinks like the apple teeny and like other, you know, other kind of like sort of, uh, sort of lowbrow, uh, things like that. And something that I'm finding really interesting is to hear about how, um, cocktail culture and kind of craft cocktails are sort of 
seen as being really like the, you know, the dark ages were the nineties and then at kind of in the early two thousands and then onward, it was sort of this like golden age of this renaissance of craft cocktails. And I'm kind of trying to see how true that really was. Um, and so when I saw that you, um, you know, you mentioned that you were, were a bartender in the nineties and, and since you're such a, um, you've been a mentor of mine for, um, 15 years at least, uh, <laughs> that I thought it would you'd be great to talk to about, you know, someone who was kind of quote, like, you know, there kind of in the, in the trenches in the nineties. And then also like, as you know, the kind of this craft cocktail revival started to formulate in the early two thousands, um, you were also there. So I'm just, I'm just really curious to hear, uh, you know, what, I don't know what your take on, you know, nineties cocktail culture, um, is, and, and kind of what your memories are of it. Yeah, it's funny. The Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. Thanks. Uh, I was so excited to receive it. And it, it, you, your, your second publisher is the publisher of my first book. And, and they, they do such a great job of making kind of beautiful packages. And, and you know, I'm a sucker for art. And so I, I just, I'm really... When I received the book, I knew it would be great because you wrote it. But I, I'm really enjoying spending time with it, and and um, I, I just think it's fun. And, Thank you. and I think that that is when I think of the '90s, uh, both my time drinking in bars and working in bars, it was really a lot of fun. Um, right. And aside from the sort of um, gastronomy of beverage that that we sort of you know, that, that most of my career is focused on in this century, the last century, my experience at the end of it as a young adult uh, was I had a lot of fun and, and the drinks were, were not very serious, mostly, really none of them. And, uh, and it was fun. I will say, and I imagine Toby probably mentioned it, that there, this idea that the dark ages were pitch black Right. is in, is incorrect like the there were um i'm sure toby would have mentioned the using fresh juices in the pre-2000 mm -hmm. and i worked at a, a bar in madison wisconsin in the 90s called cafe momar which had a classic uh focused cocktail menu that used fresh juices so mm. it was probably one of the only places in town that you could get a drink like that but but it was there and it was quite popular among a small group of people. So I think that that's, that's definitely something that I, I imagine your, your other guests will point out is that it was dark in a, if you, if you apply today's, some of today's logic and values to the nineties, right. Um, it was dark, but it, but it wasn't pitch black. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to, to, for me in my own like chauvinism of living in New York and learning to bartend at, at PDT in 2000, seven or 2008 uh that like you know the fact that there was a craft cocktail bar in madison wisconsin at all is kind of surprising and the fact that even like in the 90s was we're you know doing like fresh juice yeah yeah and i think you used the key word craft cocktail we the the 90s had a um the cigar bar was kind of a thing in the nineties as well as swing dancing was a thing in the nineties. I remember this, swing dancing. Um, yeah. And so I think that this, <laughs> uh, the, the, the swing dancing, um, 
the swing dancing sort of era as is the brought back this retro vibe. So these drinks mm-hmm. weren't craft in the nineties. They were, they were considered retro. Right. That's interesting. So, you know, when, when you're talking about this, like kind of the, the way the cocktail culture was back in the nineties, uh, where was like, you know, now we have like a million cocktail books. We've got like 20,000 YouTube channels, TikTok, everything, you know, we have like a lot of like structures for maintaining and disseminating kind of cocktail culture, but like where were people getting their like kind of their ideas and, and, and where were like, where were the big texts, you know, of, of cocktails in the nineties that were that instructed people that said like fresh juice is better. You know, these are the right, these are the right ingredients and these are the right recipes. Like where, where were people relying on? Like what was the Bible? Honestly, the, the book that was behind every bar that I worked in in the nineties was the Mr. Boston's bar. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's why, you know, when I got the opportunity to edit it, you know, uh, back around 2004 or five with Anthony Giglio that I jumped at it is that it was, um, it was like a telephone book, you know, it wasn't yeah. really, um, it didn't focus your attention. It was just all of the numbers of all the people that you could possibly ever want to call, you know? So I, I think that the answer to that really was there, there wasn't a book like that. Right. And the way that you found out about either what was going on or the way that you learned was by either going to bars and seeing people doing something or, or really by being, trained by somebody um so I, I would say that that was the the most culinary thing that i saw going on in the 90s was just sort of the the affection for all of the vodka infusions that were used for martini programs i mean in the 90s especially the late 90s um the big fad was martini bars and right. you would go to um, I mean, that was the bleeding edge of cocktail innovation was going to a martini bar that had a hundred different martinis on the menu of which very few of them had gin or any vermouth in them. They were right. just sort of, uh, different colored Up vodka drinks. drinks, really. Yeah. 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 It's really, yeah, Toby mentioned that too, about, uh, yeah, that's the, the highlight of, of a lot of nineties, you know, craft culture, craft cocktail programs was like just jars and jars and jars of infusions into vodka. Yep. And it would be like a big jar in the same way that, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago you would go to a bar and they would have a couple different barrel ages, you know, like either Negronis or things that being used for a barrel aged Negroni, the barrel aged Negroni of the nineties was like a chili pepper infused vodka that was being used for, a martini or for a bloody Mary on, you know, for brunch or something like that. Like it was, that was the, that was the culinary, that was the sort of culinary leading edge of the nineties. And I, and I think that, um, I mean, before I I get in front of, before I like get in front of this conversation, I, I would just say that the, I've thought about the like major sort of tectonic plates of, of my career before the cocktail renaissance and 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 after and i think the two main historical changes that have that have changed bartending really forever uh, between the two edges is really the the iphone coming out in 2007 uh which really sort of 
um, you know, went, you know, none of my life before that really is well photographed or, or certainly not on any sort of video or, you know, is, is not documented where I feel like the technology of phones today is such that people documenting every single element of their lives on their phones now is just sort of, it's part of every important event and ritual. It's um, so normal. And, yeah. and I would say, and then that has changed bars and has changed bartending forever. Um, and, and I think the other big one, which doesn't get talked about a lot, is the 2003 smoking ban that Michael Bloomberg um, wow. put up in New York, which led to smoking bans across the country and eventually led to sort of smoking being banned in bars. And I, and I think as someone who worked in very, very, very smoky bars um, throughout the 90s and up until that point, that so much of going to bars pre-2003 smoking ban was smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would say what went along with smoking was uh, and, connected, and connects to the iPhone is that so much of going to bars before these two events was mating. And, and I think bars were places that people went to find other people to mate with. Right. And so, so I think that like, it's hard I imagine for young bartenders to imagine it today, but like my, the amount of time bartenders now, the luxury we have to spend thinking about our beverages, is just not a mind share that I had in the nineties. My time in the nineties was spent probably somewhat equally between cleaning ashtrays and, and lighting and servicing cigarettes, mm. serving drinks, and then dealing with the insane amount of mating rituals that were going on <laughs> in my bar, some of which were not going well and needed intervention. And so I think that, that those three sort of activities, beverage service, smoking mitigation, and, and you know, sort of lighting and cleaning services – and then mm. dealing with a wide variety of meeting and greeting going on, some of which was going well and some of which wasn't going well, was what bartending was for me pre-sort of 2007. And, and is, I think Tinder and, and, and the sort of dating apps have all changed. And the phone really yeah. has changed between the smoking going away and now the iPhone taking over. I now really am like a, a one-trick pony. You know, I'm a I'm a beverage person. I'm a right. specialist. I want to ask you some more about that, but we're going to take a quick break and be right back in a sec. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams of new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. 
Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, uh, and we're back with Jim Mian. Um, Jim, before the break, you were talking about how kind of like what the role of a bartender sort of evolved uh, into what it is now kind of at the cusp of the, you know, kind of Y2K millennium uh, with regards to like smoking and kind of like bars being a hookup place and also um, the phone uh, really kind of the smartphone really like making making it so that you could document drinks and sort of share them around. That's what you meant by, by, by the phone, right? Like how you, know, you go to a bar and now you take a picture, you tag the bartender and then it's everywhere. Whereas, you know, in 2002 or 1997, you didn't really have that ability. You had to like have a little point and shoot camera and the, the people who were able to see that were very low. Yeah, I think it's that, but it's actually also, I remember one time talking with someone as I like walked into a bar and you, I looked at a bar and the bar was filled with people staring into their phones mm-hmm. instead of talking to each other or talking to the bartender. And I think it was either the bartender or the person that I was with remarked that the way that the only way to get these people's attentions is through their phones. Right. And and so I would say, in addition to the phone being used as where you find your next mate or where, how to document your experience, the phone is now the entertainment in publicly and privately, whereas in bars previous to this, you would go to a bar and you would either feel obli- you know, like obliged to speak to the people around you yeah. or you would use the bartender as the concierge to facilitate that and that has now disappeared so it's like the role of the bartender evolved from more of like a social um connector and kind of like maintenance of the space to someone who actually you know does like quote mixology to use a word that probably not everyone loves but i find very useful um i think that that, i mean the, the word mixology has been around for hundreds of years but um, I think that the the idea of the bartender being the kind of site of culinary action versus the kind of person who's taking care of the space um, is a really interesting one to think about when it comes to like what bartending was like in the '90s and kind of what how drinking culture evolved since then. Um, yeah, we were like bees pollinating flowers. I feel like back then, you know, maybe not all of them were flowers, but right, <laughs> uh, and certainly we did sting some people, but. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was much more interactive back then. And now I feel like the, one of the biggest challenges bartenders and operators face is how to create an environment that's stimulating enough to get people to put their phone down sometimes, Yeah, you know, and I think that is a legitimate challenge given how highly functional our phones are now. Right. They're very interesting to look at. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot on that. There's a lot on there. Yeah, it's true. So when you think about like the nineties in terms of like what kind of drinks you were making, I mean, it seems like you were working at a place of somewhat of an outlier with regards to just like the amount of kind of quote craft that was involved in that program. But like when you think about like kind of stereotypical, like hallmark cocktails of the nineties, like where, what comes to mind? It's funny when I speak to bartenders now about the 90s, I usually preface my remarks that like the the sort of drinks I made literally would be subjects for inquiries of sexual harassment. <laughs> 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 so many of the no. drinks 
that we made were so lewd. Like their names were lewd, their yeah. concepts were lewd. They were they were obscene. Um, and so I would say that in my the first bar I worked at State Street Broths, which is still there in Madison, we served a lot of uh, lewd shots and 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 sort of drinks like the like the swamp water, the Long Island iced tea or the Alabama slammer, you know, sort of. And then I, I quickly graduated from, not quickly, I was there for a couple of years, but after two and a half years, I moved up, up state street to a bar called Paul's club, which was more of a craft beer bar that like people drank, you know, sort of gin and tonics or more classic drinks. That bar I talked about cafe Mumar was the one that was the outlier that that served classic cocktails. But I would say that generally speaking, the I didn't work in a martini bar in the nineties. I I worked at these sort of craft beer or like sort of, if you can imagine nineteen eighty seven I think is when Bombay Sapphire and the I think Bombay Sapphire came out around ninety seven. I think Patron came out around eighty seven. Okay. Um so like by the nineties um these sort of like small like these gin like gin and bourbon are starting to become popular in a very novel sense yeah and what was it about i mean it seems like they're like the 90s were also kind of exemplified by the ubiquity of vodka yeah what do you think why do you think that was I think that the advertising, I mean, obviously the like ad age of Mad Men was more in the 50s and 60s, but I think that the um, the 90s and, and late 80s were this like sort of John Cusack, like post John Cusack, sort of like glossy, like, like really, I mean, I guess the Wolf of Wall Street would be the sort of right. uh, modern sort of visualization of this conspicuous consumption culture that was driven by this like glossy Madison Avenue style of consumption that was sort of epitomized by the ab- absolute advertising campaigns. Mm. So I think that the, um, I think that vodka marketing, especially the absolute ads were iconic. And then I, th- and I think that that, that the zeitgeist of that time was really, fueled through Hollywood and through the sort of um, kind of playboy, bad boy imagery that you, you saw um, in movies and on TV and in sports. These were the like the Jordan era mm-hmm. of basketball. I don't know for any of your listeners who went back and, and watched that great documentary about the Jordan era of basketball, but it was a... Um, it was a quite a heady time. And, and I think that people, um, it was also like George Bush was president. I mean, there, there was there's yeah. plenty of reasons to want to, to need to, to, to look for a strong drink. Right. And so it's a vodka kind of was this, was this like, was popular because it was like a, pr- like a high proof something. You could just get a cocktail that was like strong as opposed to like a beer or a wine or. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I've always felt that, um, you know, as I've thought of, about why people drink cocktails, I think that yeah. cocktails, there are many reasons why people drink cocktails, but I think that one of the functions they serve is this form of mirroring where, mm. um, people drink a drink that like either reflects their actual mood or their desired mood. They, they function as these, 
identifying signifiers that really sort of allow people to like either be themselves or be an idealized version of themselves. Right. And I feel like certain drinks have such strong identities. Like you, when you order a Bloody Mary or a mojito or a margarita, you can't really impose your own identity on that drink because it has such a strong identity of its own. So when you drink that, you're like leaning into the identity of what that is. Yeah. Whereas, whereas when you order something more novel, like that doesn't have such a strong identity or that's made with something like vodka that, that has really very little character. I think you're allowed your, it, it functions more like a canvas that allows you to impose a little bit more of yourself into it. So I think that there's a certain amount without getting too like sort of philosophical, there's a certain amount of narcissism that goes into a vodka drink because it, it's just, you sort of, it's, it's nothing. <laughs> you know, like, it requires you to add personality to it. And right. I think that that's, that was part of its allure back then. Like the blank canvas was sort of like the a, blank canvas that you could paint on. Yeah. Exactly. With your you own personality, of, your own moods, your own, the, what pro, you wanted it to mean for you. You project your own hopes and dreams on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm also, I'm also really curious about like this kind of pivotal turning point that seemed to be have occurring in the late nineties and then sort of that launched this craft cocktail revival. Cause if you think about like Flatiron lounge and Pegu club and death and death and company, and then even milk and honey, uh, I think it was open, open in 2000 and 2001, you know, was, and it's kind of easy to frame it in terms of like a, maybe a backlash, but to me, it seems like this was sort of like the 90s were almost laying the groundwork for this sort of thing. And it just was this momentum moment. And uh, the idea of what a bartender did be began to change. And then with that came these new bars that were really focusing on cocktails as like a culinary art form and not just like a vehicle for alcohol, essentially. Um, yeah. When, you know between the years of, you know, being in, in, in Wisconsin and, and then opening PDT in 2007, like what, like, I mean, do you, do you see yourself as playing a role in that kind of that pivot or what was going on at that time that was like led to where we are today, basically, which is like where, you know, you can get a Negroni on an airplane <laughs> and it's good. Um, like what Yeah. You, I would say that the, it's, Interesting now that we've had enough time to look back on this, right. um, that we, I, I think that we can develop um, new narratives or new interpretations of what was happening and why it happened. I, I would say that um, for myself, I moved to New York nine months after 9-11 at a time when the city itself was still really sort of rebuilding after 9-11 and, and the yeah. hospitality industry was absolutely devastated by the events of 9-11. And right. so as I think back upon my experience in New York, I think about, you know, for instance, like COVID, you know, what just happened to the hospitality mm. industry during COVID and, 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 you know, to a lesser extent, you know, looking at PDT, PDT opened in 2007, right in the midst of the financial crash. I know. Yeah. And, and I think that if we, if we think about sort of like these, these, you know, 
2007 financial crisis, the, the COVID crisis that we hopefully are almost over, there's almost like a sense of like, there's like a forest fire where like, where mm. the fire destroys the forest, but there's this rebirth that happens afterwards in this period, this period of renewal that comes after a, a fire. I feel like the, um, as I look back on, on this, there's, um, there's a lot going on. You know, I think some yeah. of it is um, this idea of birth and renewal. I think some of it is thinking about the, um, how there's a culinary, really a sort of like wine and beer and, and, and culinary renaissance that goes back to, you know, Alice Waters and, and California cuisine that, that was very much going on as well on the East Coast and the way mm-hmm. cocktails became culinary in a market-driven way kind of stemming from these more culinary martini menus. But I also think as we think about the specific bars like Milk and Honey and then Pegu Club and Flatiron Lounge in particular and employees only as well, is I think that like what Sasha unfortunately isn't here to speak for what he intended or, or for how he went about this. But as I think about it more and more and especially reflect back on the role Angels share played on Sasha, I begin to think that really in many ways, what we called a, what a, what we called the sort of modern speakeasy in milk and honey was really a, a Tokyo Ginza bar that was never, that that was fashioned along the lines of angel share, you know, and in many ways we almost got that wrong. And because of that, you know, bars like say maybe PDT or, or, or death and company or, or sort of bars that were either straight speakeasies or, or, or were sort of nodded to it. Like employees only did were, they kind of got the, they missed the, 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 actually the origin point of it. And, and, or at least the media did. And and I think that um, if we think about milk and honey as a Tokyo Ginza style bar, instead of a Neo speakeasy, I begin to wonder what that all would mean as we unspool history from that thread. I also think that um, different, I think that as we stand here today, obviously the, the role of say Julie Reiner and Audrey Saunders and Sasha and, and the sort of, I think that there was like a, a pairing between these lounges that were very much bars that had some food Mm-hmm. versus restaurants like WD 50 was a restaurant that opened right around the time I moved to New York. Yeah. And I think about the, the cocktail program there. And, and I think about cocktail programs at other restaurants nationwide, whether Taylor. it be, you know, at Alinea with Grand Atkins or at drink with Barbara Lynch or at, uh, slanted door, um, in San Francisco. Um, I think that restaurants and chefs, you know, Violet hour with Paul Kahn, um, I think about a lot of great cocktail bars that, that sort of paved the way for where we are today were incubated in restaurants, you know, Holman and Finch with Greg Best and Linton Hopkins. Um, they were restaurant bar programs, certainly what you did after PDT with David Chang at Momofuku. Um, and I think that we mostly focus on the bars and the lounges. So I think that there are numerous sort of threads we can pull on as we think of the narrative. And I think the story is actually way more complex than, than it's been told yet. Definitely. Uh, you know, 
Um, well, I feel like I've exhausted all of my '90s questions for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I have some '90s questions for you. I mean, one of the first go ahead. I thought when when I when I read this book was like, how old was John in the '90s? Like, I guess my questions for you, looking at, I mean, I know in my post for the book, I immediately thought that the the that Gizmo was on the cover, and someone on my post was like i think that's a, a furby fur yeah <laughs> furby so I just, yeah it was funny like the my i guess i was working and i was like in college in my 20s in the 90s what was your what was it like for you to write this book um what was it like like what is your what did you what have you learned from the 90s that's a that's a great question and i'm, I'm glad this is getting inverted into interviewing me. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I have one I, more question after this. Too. Okay. That's great. Uh, yeah. We have no time limit. Um, so for, for me, the nineties were, were really interesting because, you know, I'm part of this generation of people that can sort of has a very clear memory of what life was like before the internet, but also like was sort of native to the internet. So like, I remember, you know, I grew, I was basically, you know, nine years old, wait, no, eight years old. I turned eight, had just turned eight when it, we, you know, the clock uh, struck 1990. And then I was basically, I just turned, uh, I turned 19 uh, in 2000. So, um, so it was, it was a very um, pivotal decade for me. I feel like the, there is a, there is a parallel between like the ascendancy of the internet and this kind of acceleration of our culture that sort of coincided with my own kind of coming into consciousness. And, you know, I obviously have memories of the eighties, but like kind of where I became who I was, was that decade. Um, yeah. and so it was really interesting to place a lot of these cultural, um, artifacts, if you will, in this context of like the nineties were the de decade that kind of defined the 21st century. Um, yeah. and it laid the groundwork for the world that we're living in now. And so I saw that kind of reflected in like, you know, my adolescence was the nineties and that's where you kind of form who you are as a person for the rest of your life to a certain extent. So seeing that kind of parallel was really cool. Um, I also like, I knew I didn't drink. I mean, I think I had some Kahlua. I think I may have had a mind eraser <laughs> in, in the year 2000. But like, as far as like drinking, I never went to a cocktail bar. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't really drink until I was like 18, 19 for the most part, except for like furtive, you know, sips of wine or maybe like a random vodka shot here and there when I was like in high school. But um, I didn't have the 90s cocktail knowledge to be able to speak authoritatively about what it was like to drink in the 90s. So I, I knew that that was just sort of a I had to avoid that and really just talk about these other, you know, non-drink things and then find a way to make drinks that are related and that are inspired by those things so that there's not a sense of me being like, oh, I'm going to tell you what, what drinking was like in the 90s because I was wouldn't be able to do that. Um so I think I learned a lot about kind of like where, like myself and, you know, these are the kinds of the things that I picked for the book and these are the kinds of things that kind of made me who I was and things that I still enjoy. Um, and sort of placing that in um, sort of more of a broader context kind of makes you feel a little bit more 
maybe a little bit more important. <laughs> and like, you know, as someone who's like never, not going to have children, uh, you know, it's kind of like a way of sort of placing yourself within history in a way that feels kind of comforting. Yeah. I have to say, as I, as I was thinking about, you know, this interview, but also this, you know, opportunity so much of the nineties, I was in the library cause I was taking college classes and then I was, I worked my way through college. So when I wasn't in the library I, or in class, I was at, I was at work. So in yeah. some ways, like I didn't recognize that the, the, the Furby. gizmo at like adjacent <laughs> toy was cause uh, like I did, uh, what was very interesting to me when I opened your book and started reading through and looking at a lot of it is I didn't, recognize a lot and it really kind of hit me like a ton of bricks that i spent the 90s either in a library you know reading about literature or at a bar during an era where like you know the packers were and the badgers were constantly winning super bowls or rose bowls or like i was just i was so busy with life yeah that the culture of the 90s i didn't have time to go to movies or watch tv or or like sort of really sort of let the zeitgeist of the nineties really affect what I was thinking about or doing. So as I've like looked and, and like, I guess it brings me to my second question, which I think you answer in the book, but I'll let you speak to it is that I feel like obviously as, as bar operators and bartenders, we, we work a little bit like fashion designers or stylists where we're constantly like, looking to different eras of history to sort of use for inspiration for our cocktails or our cocktail programs. And I think that the nineties has been this like third rail where, or like really more the seventies and eighties, but like, Mm. for instance, like when Greg Bohm opened golden Cadillac with Giuseppe, I was just like, please do not open this Pandora's box of terrible cocktails, (laughs) you know, back up because we all saw what happened to the, to the industry when this was became the dominant form of drinking is that right. people eventually just stopped drinking cocktails. And, and I think that part of my concern when I was, when I, I'm usually like everything you do, the first thing I think of is, Oh my gosh, what's John doing now? And then I have to like <laughs> pinch myself and be like, well, it's John. I'm sure he's going to figure the smart way to do this. So my first concern when I, when, when I found out you're doing a nineties book was, Oh my gosh, please don't make the nineties drinks popular again. But as I like look through your book, you while the zeitgeist is the '90s, the drinks are very modern in many yes. ways. Like yeah. they're playful in a '90s way, but yeah. they definitely aren't reg- regressively retro. Um, they aren't vulgar. They're no. actually really sort of smart while honoring the zeitgeist. How did you s- sort of square that circle, or how did you polish that turd? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's funny because I was on Dave Arnold's podcast a couple weeks ago, and he was like, "Your drinks are all completely off the rails," <laughs> in, in a good they way. Are, that's a, a com- way, yeah. that's a compliment coming from Dave Arnold. So, um, you know, I, for for me, it's like the the drink recipe. You know, it's like being so steeped in cocktail culture and you know, knowing having like the structure of all these drinks beaten into you and like, this is what balances and like you have, you want your drinks to be dry and tart and interesting. That was a sort of automatic, like it's hard for me to not make a drink that's sort of like in this like New York city, mid aughts, you know, PDT, death and company, milk and honey kind of 
style. But then when it came time to make drinks that were sort of like, <clears throat> it's almost like a way, like, like you're writing humor where it's like, okay, I have this end point. I have this like punchline that I want to get to in this drink that relates to something that's outside of the drink. How do I then use the kind of tools to get, to get there and the kind of the way that the drinks end up being tasting is that they're balanced, that they're up to date. They're they use ingredients that you know, people can find. Um, but I usually had some pretty heavy outside parameter that made it like really like hard for me to deviate too far from from the from like the the structure of like let's say like the, the Jurassic park drink, you know, like life finds a way is this like, <laughs> is this iconic line from this, from Jeff Goldblum. And so it's like, well, what's the culinary pun with way? And it's well, well milk way. And then it's like, right. well, so you want to make a way cocktail that also kind of talks about like Costa Rica. Cause the Island in Jurassic park is off the coast of Costa Rica. And so what are some like ingredients that you can find that make sense for all of that? So it's like rum and mango and pineapple and you put it all in a blender. So like, by giving myself these very like kind of rigid parameters, it became very right. easy to do something like unhinged, but very kind of disciplined. That's what I love about it is that it's very, <laughs> the nineties weren't like that. They were just unhinged. Yeah. You know, like they were, so I, I feel like that's, I think that this book is fascinating because it's not, it's, I think it also is, I think so many so many of us obviously were inspired by the, you know, the David Wondriches or the right. sort of histories played such a huge role in the last 20 years of, of drinks and drinks books. And I like the way this book is both, it's very historical in a cultural sense, but it's a historical in the drink sense. And I think that was a, uh, a surprise and delight element of this book, because I, I think that without like, you know, casting unnecessary aspersions on the nineties. It's like the nineties weren't interesting because the drinks were so good. Everything else was really interesting. Right. I think. Um, and so I think that you've improved the drinks, but you've, you've leaned into the culture in a way that is, I think that is um, really smart. You know, I think that there's, there's so much, as you said, like this was like a sort of seminal moment in your life as you, as a, like you were kind of coming into adulthood and i think that you are at a impressionable time in your life where you're able to sort of like soak it all in and synthesize it and the way you toggle between like tv and toys and music and and um kind of food and 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 sort of you know it, it's really sort of it's fun and playful and i think like your last book i think that um as someone who's guilty of writing cocktail books that are not the most fun cocktail books <laughs> that have ever been written. I think that you you do a great job of of sort of lighten giving some levity to these to the this genre of of books without without compromising their quality, you know, which which a lot of writers unfortunately are just going for the clicks and, and could right. kind of care less about the craft. Well, thank you so <laughs> thank you for that very High praise. I think it's actually a perfect place to end things. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for, for joining me. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for having me on, John. Yeah. Saved by the Bellini is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.